Hi, everyone. Welcome to the third season of Transformative Leadership Conversations with me, your host, Winnie Da Silva. Storytelling is our most powerful tool for changing anything in the world today. This compelling quote from one of my guests, Holly Gordon, sums up my aspirational goal for this podcast, sharing stories to change you, your leadership, your team, your company. As an executive coach and leadership strategist for over 20 years, I've come to know and work with some pretty incredible people. This podcast is designed to share their inspiring stories and practical ideas you can use to develop yourself as a leader and as a person. Thank you for supporting me in this podcast. If you've listened to an episode and felt its impact, could you tell someone about it? Maybe forward an episode, post about it on social, or text someone who might be interested in listening. If you could share just one, I'd be grateful. Cassandra Rose is a founding partner and DEI practice co-lead at Meritark, a human capital software company and provider of advisory services. Cassandra helps organizations fully leverage their diversity, equity, and inclusion strategy and enables HR and people leaders to connect the value of their talent with their mission. She has also been recognized as a top 100 DEI leader in 2021 by Mogul. Cassandra is also a compelling speaker on the topics of benefits equity and centering the BIPOC employee journey for transformative employee engagement. Our conversation will change your thinking on all these topics and more. One of the things that I'm pretty sure anyone who has reported into me has said is that you know how to make me feel seen. Wow. Because there's been moments in my career where I've been the only. I've been the only woman. I've been the only Black woman. I've been the only person from Brooklyn. I've been the only person whose parents don't have a beach house in some other place <laughs> in the world. <laughs> and so it's very easy to want to shrink yourself, to want to not show who you are because you feel like who you are may be rejected, who you are is not good enough to be in that room. Yeah. No matter which role I had, I knew I had my mind. I knew I had my intelligence. I knew that if I was in this room, I deserved to be in this room. I may not look like everyone around me, but there's a reason I'm in here where someone else who applied for my job isn't. And in that confidence, I was like, then why shouldn't I show who I am? So now when I think about people joining my team, or even if it's a cross-collaborative team, even if it's someone who's coming to me to ask for their dental insurance card, Winnie, for the 10th time. (laughs) (laughs) It's in your wallet. (laughs) By the way. I want them to feel seen. Cassandra, thank you so much for being on my show. I'm really looking forward to talking to you. It's funny because we've never met. This is the first time that we've met, but I'm really excited to have you here. I noticed that we had a lot of people in common over LinkedIn, and I thought, this is someone I really want to talk to. So thank you for being so generous with your time and being here with me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Winnie, for having me. It's definitely an honor to be here with you. You've hit on several HR roles throughout your career, but you have specifically landed on benefits (laughs) and (laughs) DEI, right? Yeah. And I feel like you've made this topic interesting and you've increased sort of the overall awareness that benefits is more important than we typically acknowledge or give it credit for. Do you think that's true? How do you see your role in benefits and all that? Thank you for giving me that level of credit. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to take that to the bank, but thank you. And yeah, I don't see that many people talking about benefits equity and that's why I make sure to be an advocate for it in any avenue or channel that I'm able to access. And 
truly what benefits equity is about is health equity. When we think about having access to healthcare, that's a human right. Yeah. Everyone should be able to know that if they need care, they can go to the doctor, go see a psychiatrist, get your eyes checked, <laughs> go to the dentist without having a barrier of money or just someone around that actually provides that service. And when we think about the U.S., the majority of people who live in the U.S. get their health care through their employer. And so whenever I've been within an organization, one thing that I've realized was whether someone was making a million dollars or someone was making $35,000, they had the exact same questions. They also were having trouble navigating the system, understanding their benefits, participating in a way that truly is refreshing for them and can resource them. So that's why I'm like, let's stop waiting for people to come to the table. I want to go out to the people and say proactively, yes, you do deserve care. And yes, let's partner together to figure out ways to make sure we receive it. Because of course, your other area of expertise is diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I wonder how they intersect for you. Because when you think about benefits equity, I imagine that that's equity for everyone. But I imagine that people of color, BIPOC people really may not have the same access to understanding their benefits. Tell me more about that. Help me understand that better. Yeah, you're definitely going in the right direction. So when we think about people who have historically been excluded from work. If we truly think about it, if we roll the clock back (laughs) just a hundred years, right? Women started to get the right to vote in 1920, mostly white women. It wasn't until 1965 where black women and women of color were able to vote. Having a bank account as a woman, that was something in the 50s or 60s. So when we think about these things that we sometimes take for granted in 2022, just roll the clock back a little bit. So when these things were designed, even HR as a practice was personnel. It was paperwork. It was just making sure people got paid, people had sick days. And it's now grown into creating cultures, creating little microcosms of humanity and finding out what we can do to better attract and retain that talent. But if the things that we're pouring, and Winnie, I'm not kidding here, millions of dollars into, is it working? not just for the people who have historically had access to it, but even for those that we are actively trying to recruit now, something's broken. And so one of the things that I realized just throughout my work was, hey, we are spending eight-figure budgets on benefits, and people are telling me stories like, I haven't been to the doctor since high school. I didn't know we had a 401k. These are white-collar workers who are educated, have a college degree, So I'm like, okay, if people who have information literally at their fingertips are unaware, can you imagine what else is going on from an industry and nation perspective? And when we think about health inequities in our country, we know that women don't have the same access to care or levels of care that men do. We know that Black women die in childbirth at three times the rate of white women. We know that there is nutritional deficiency. We have food deserts. We have a lot of different socioeconomic issues, but they show up in the workplace too. And if we're going to have those wellness programs, if we're going to continue to invest eight-figure budgets into our people, it is imperative that we make it work better because when everyone gets what they need, which is what equity is, everyone gets better. 
Yeah, yeah. I just think it's so interesting and kind of exciting that you're able to link benefits to so many other things that are going on in the world today and how important that is. And when you think about, gosh, 1965, that Black women had the right to vote. My dad's wife, who's lovely, talking about how she wasn't allowed to have a credit card. She couldn't apply for her own. Correct. So we're not talking about a long time ago. No, we are not. So the fact that you're working so hard in this area, it's just an unexpected area of inequity that you must feel really passionate about and feeling like you're making a big difference in because it doesn't have a spotlight. It doesn't have a spotlight, Winnie, but I have enough stories just from people coming back to me and saying, thank you that you took the time to explain that to me. I was able to save enough money in my 401k to use money to buy my first home or thank you for making sure I went to the doctor. I found out that I actually had a condition that if more isn't taken care of, could have gotten worse and we could have been in a different predicament. It's those stories that kept me digging deeper into the data and just going, what more can I do? And I like to joke because I have an Instagram account where I give out benefits and DEI tips and I do videos and posts because I was like, I just want to make sure that people are finding it easy. That's the barrier too. this dense summary plan description, which most people don't know about, or even like a benefits guide. And you're just like, there's like 500 pages of all these great things and I'll get to it. And then it gets dusty. <laughs> Because we're busy working. Yeah. It isn't until we have a life crisis, right? Like, oh my gosh, my kid's tooth just fell out. And who's that dentist? It isn't until those points where you need something and you need it so urgently. That's when you realize, oh, I didn't have a primary care doctor. That's when you realize, oh, I have to pay $100, $1,000 before insurance will kick in. So I think that's why people have a certain mistrust that, oh, these things aren't great for me. They're not really meant for me. They are. We design them in mind to support you throughout your life. And if we're getting you invested in you, truly in you and what you need, these things are better able to support you and serve you. And you're a happier person for it. And happy people, secret tip to everyone, are better employees. <laughs> Who knew? <laughs> well, I want to say a couple things. First of all, we're definitely going to put a link to your Instagram account because I bet a lot of people are going to want to see some of that. I think also, at least for me, I almost feel like benefits and insurance and 401ks, if anyone has like a math anxiety out there, I feel like it's equal to like an insurance benefits anxiety because it's not easy. Like, I don't know. And there's numbers and it can be so overwhelming for people. Winnie, you bring up such a good point, And that's usually the second prong of my advocacy around literacy. So when we're thinking about first, you just need access. You need to know that you can access a doctor and not have to drive 50 miles away. Because what if you don't have a car? What if you live in the city <laughs> and you have to take two trains and a bus to get to this specialist that's in network to save 50 bucks or maybe even a thousand, right? But then we're talking about literacy and understanding what that means. Do you truly have a copay versus coinsurance? I like to usually say FSA, HSA, 401k. They all sound like great rap groups. <laughs> but what does that mean? It's speaking a whole new language. And I used to tell my employees, your job isn't to know all that I know. Your job is to do the job you were hired for. I am here to help you advocate to get the right access to care for you. So tell me what's confusing. Tell me where it's gone wrong. And that's why I've appreciated those 
conversations from that person making a million dollars being willing to go, hey, can you sit with me and just really break this down for me? Because that makes me know that the communications that are in place aren't working. Because if that person's not getting it, it's not just that person. So how can I break things down? So I actually work with clients around better benefits communications and really focusing on moments that matter. A really high level one would be if someone is family planning, instead of going to this website to learn about egg freezing and then that website to learn about your insurance and then this third website to learn about well-being during pregnancy, why don't we just create a package? It's like, hey, you may be expecting, maybe through surrogacy, maybe through adoption, maybe through birthing, here are all the different benefits and offerings we have in one place. Wouldn't you want to read that? Yes, definitely. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's like streamline all of this, right? Exactly. So when we bring a human centered approach to this work, people get excited and that math is secondary. It's when people feel like that's the first thing they have to understand. They're like, I'm just trying to have a baby. (laughs) Yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. It's hard enough. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So that's why I make sure that in my advocacy, I'm always, always showcasing the fact that if we just make things relatable, people are willing to open their minds, they're willing to open their hearts to what you have to say and feel better about the decisions that they're going to make. So you're kind of like a benefits translator slash coach. I like to call myself a benefits whisperer. (laughs) That's good. That's good. So how did you get to benefits? Oh, easy. I went to kindergarten and when they asked anyone, (laughs) what did you want to be when you grew up? I was like a benefits professional, but of course. (laughs) No, I've always been a person who liked to advocate for other people. So I was dead set on becoming a lawyer because I was like, oh yeah, I can go in and fight for the underdog. I didn't get into law school, which was a huge disappointment. So I did the natural thing, which was become an inner city missionary. Oh, cool. (laughs) Awesome. That is a natural (laughs) transition. Right? Next up, of course, I took a year off. I had actually graduated early because I wanted to go to law school that bad. I graduated at 19. Wow. And when I didn't get into law school, I was like, well, I kind of have two years to myself. So I took one of those years and became an inner city missionary in Philadelphia. Awesome. And I loved doing that work. It was heartbreaking and heartwarming simultaneously. And then my student loans were like, hey, this is great, but you need to pay us back. So if you could get a job, that'd be awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Let's make some money. Yeah, yeah. And give it directly to us. (laughs) You're right. (laughs) So I started temping because at that point, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And every temp assignment I got, whether it was two weeks or two months, was HR focused. And I was like, wait, I can get paid to help people. And at that point in time, I was doing recruiting. I was like, I get paid to help people get jobs. This is amazing. This is missionary work in itself. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. So I went from doing recruiting, then the financial crisis of the late 2000s occurred. I went into HR analytics because that was something that was still available. Did that for about two years, but I missed talking to people instead of sitting in front of spreadsheets all day. And my manager at the time was like, hey, would you like to do mobility and immigration? I was like, I don't even know how to spell visa. (laughs) That seems super (laughs) complicated. And I ended up doing that role for about three years. I've literally moved teams of people and their loved ones from one continent to another through corporate immigration. Wow. And after about three years of that, as you can see the world, there's a lot of complications when it comes to different governments and businesses. I was like, can I get something a little less hard. 
And my manager was like, benefits. I was like, I'll stay with the visa thing. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say benefits. That's got to be harder. (laughs) Right. But she was like, no, if you can do mobility and immigration, I trust you to do this. And I'm really thankful to her because once I got to benefits, I fell in love. And someone once told me, they were like, I've never heard someone (laughs) say that. But when you think about all these different life events, getting your first job and being so excited and showing up to new higher orientation, all shiny and hopeful, or getting married or having a baby, getting a divorce or an employee passing away. Like these are things that are going on all the time. And to be an advocate for people, to be that hand that they hold throughout the process of the life stage that they're going through, it's an amazing bond that you create with someone. I have employees who are truly friends of mine because I was there for them in that moment of joy or sorrow. Wow. I really have never thought about it that way, that benefits has some of those spikes in your life. And that's when you need to talk to someone in benefits. So that's really fascinating that that's how you have experienced it. And that's how you've experienced the people that you've been able to help. And you've been able to forge, sounds like some long lasting relationships because of that. You've been at the right person at the right time in their life. And that's really cool. So you've recently joined Merit Arc. Tell me a little bit about your role, what you do, why you love it. Say a little bit about that. Sure. So I became a partner in Meritor almost a year ago, which I can't believe it's been so fast. (laughs) And I actually founded our DEI practice because as I shared before, whenever I was in an HR role, I always noticed those things. Winnie, I love what you said, that I'm able to notice this human element to the work that I'm doing. When I was in mobility and immigration, I'd be like, oh, that's interesting. We give visas to this group of people versus that group of people, or these types of people tend to be able to navigate the world as expats. Why not this group? When I was in HRAS, I would see a lot of data and be like, huh, hey, it's interesting that this group of people get paid more than this group of people. If you wink, wink, get what I'm saying. (laughs) Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. So Being able to be in those different seats has given me a more holistic view of the things that can go on and how without being intentionally discriminatory, we can just make decisions here and there that in aggregate have a discriminatory action consequence. Which is kind of the definition of systemic racism. Thank you, Winnie. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Exactly. It's like- (laughs) Just to put a fine point on it. I super appreciate that. One point here, we're going to put this law that has a minimum mandatory there. And before you know it, you're just like, how can this many people have such a financial gap? How can we have such a digital divide? How can all these other things? I honestly do not believe in the core of my being That people wake up and they're like, I want to be racist today. I want to be sexist today. I purposely want to underpay women 30%. I don't think that happens. I think they go, this person's about to go and leave to have a baby. I won't promote her this cycle because she won't be here for three months. She comes back. She's already a year behind her peers. And then that gap continues to grow throughout her career. I think what happens is like, you know what? That person might do better if they were in this country. So I'm going to send them out as an expat assignment. And then that person leaves the company, but the company that hired them is like, oh, this person has international experience. So we have to double their pay. These are the things that happen. And when you're sitting in the seat that I'm in, that I have access to all the data points, (laughs) I can go, hey, we need to change our policy because we're having a discriminatory impact 
to what we're actually trying to do. Right. And the companies that are leaning in right now and saying we have a DEI commitment, that's what they're trying to do. They're not saying we're going to solve this problem. This is a systemic problem starting from the time they were the second human being. (laughs) (laughs) We're saying we're going to do everything in our power to be aware, to acknowledge it, and to bring justice to that fact so we can stop it from continuing. That is the commitment that they are taking. And those are the companies that I enjoy working with. So that kind of leads to this whole idea that you're really trying to help people bridge you as a company. This is what you want. This is our mission. These are our aspirations as a culture and as a company. But yet the data doesn't align with that. And so if we know what the data is, then we can change our policies, I assume, or the ways we do things or processes in order to make changes in those data, which will then align with the outcomes that we really want. Is that kind of how you see it? Winnie, you should come work at Meridark. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) No, I just think that's interesting because to make those connections, I think is really brings to mind what you're trying to accomplish because you're connecting a lot of dots. You really are. You're right. When you're able to go If we look at this and we realize that the women at our workplace, on average, make 10% less, 20% less, now we actually have data and can say from now on, anytime we're doing a promotion cycle, let's look at how many men and women are being promoted in that cycle. Let's see what the salary proposals are for that cycle. That's how you hold yourself accountable. You're not saying this is just some wide sweeping thing. Either you're double downing on your commitment, or you're glaringly making it worse. But you can only do that when you have data. And that's why stories are so important, because people may question the data, they may say, I don't know if this is true. Is it truly that much of an industry issue? Look at the great resignation, if you don't believe me. Why do people feel burned out? Why do people feel like they need to leave in order to get better? I've had people actually tell me they didn't even know that they could take a leave of absence. Had they known that, they would have stayed. They didn't know that they could use their vacation days. It's lack of knowledge. It's lack of awareness. And again, I don't fault the HR teams because they are underwater in responsibilities between the things that they already had to do before from a compliance standpoint, from a business operations standpoint. Then you throw COVID testing and offices reopening in March, then April, then never. (laughs) Right. Right. (laughs) They have a lot going on too, but our systems are letting us down. They were fractured and they're broken. I just keep going back to the data because I feel like that data is so important because like you said, look at the data and not that data will change necessarily people's minds. You have to do other things with the data, but at least that's such an important starting point to say, you're just not making this up. This is not anecdotal. Here is the data that shows where the issues are and then what we can do about it. But I also imagine that there's a cultural aspect to it because when you think about people who say, I can't even ask for this. Like I can't ask for a a leave of absence to your example because no one else is doing it or it's just not done here. And so I imagine that having that knowledge that you can do it. Now, will there be consequences from a cultural standpoint? That's probably another question, but I imagine that that's part of your goal too, is being able to change the culture too. Absolutely. Skim actually put out a call to action, which I love under the hashtag, show us your leave. 
And really what they're asking companies to do is show us your leave policy. Show us the things that help your employees have the flexibility. Then when life comes at them, they're able to take time off to address it. And Bank of America did it. There's tons of companies from Fortune 500s to startups that are sharing their leaves. And I love that. And I hope that continues. And it's an annual campaign. I'm even going one step deeper and saying, show us the people who took your leave. Because it's one thing to have these as an offering, but if, like you said, people feel like there'll be a consequence that is negative attached to me actually utilizing this benefit, then I'm not so sure that it truly is informing your culture. Yeah, exactly. Again, I just love how you're just connecting so many dots through the data, culture, inequities, policy process, changing people's minds, but then ultimately, you know, reaching individual people and being able to help people and advocate for them. I just think that that's really interesting. And again, just the whole benefits thing is just such a surprise that that's where it started for you. And that's where it led to. So your exclusive, I shouldn't say exclusively, but primary focus now at Meridark is DEI? Yes, it's DEI because foundationally, when we're talking about diversity, We want to make sure that we're capturing all the dimensions of diversity. And so benefits, yes, has been a great framework for me, but I think it's like you said, that connectedness that I bring to my clients. And I say, let's look at your entire employee life cycle from the moment someone's a candidate and they hear about a job opening at your organization all the way till they off board. What are the different ways that you're engaging with them, supporting them through the process, onboarding them? developing them while they're at your organization and also offboarding. A lot of people think once your employee resigns, that's it. Best of luck (laughs) out there. I don't know if you've noticed this trend as well on LinkedIn. Some people are starting to put like X company, right? Like X Disney or X McKinsey to say, you know, I've worked there and I have so much pride of working there. I'm going to continue to include that in my headline. And I think that's an awesome testament to that company that that person still feels very intertwined. And as we think about the magic M word millennials, (laughs) Gen Z and the generations that come after them, they're not going to have 40 year career arcs with one company. That's no longer a thing. So as we think about the entire life cycle of an employee, we have to also think about the offboarding. So when I'm talking to my clients around diversity, equity, inclusion, from a D standpoint, I'm like, what is the diversity that you truly seek? It's very easy to get metrics and want to check off a box and say, we want to bring more Black women to the organization. I'm like, yes, but do you want them to stay? Yeah. That's literally a question that I ask. (laughs) That's great. And sometimes people raise their eyebrows. Of course, we'd want them to stay. Do you have policies in place that support Black employees? Is your culture inclusive? This is not chasing optics, if you truly want change, we have to better understand your culture. And that's where, honestly, for me, the E in DEI comes from, the equity. Okay. Let's make things equitable. Because what are Black women facing? What are Latinx employees facing? What are LGBTQIA employees facing? Until we get truthful and understand that different communities have different needs, just dropping that... (laughs) We're not all just the same. We have different needs. We have different health outcomes. We have different financial outcomes. Let's address those things. And then we can work on being inclusive. But if we just try to skip over that, we can continue to give 
the luxury benefits. We can continue to have the great policies and trips and all of that stuff, but people are going to continue leaving your company and you're going to scratch your head why. You're throwing money at a problem and you're being intentional about it, but if you're not doing it in an equitable fashion, you're always going to have that leak. Yeah. So you see the DEI as like almost a life cycle. <laughs> yes. They're stepping stones to each other. It's a continuous circuit because as you're bringing in diversity, it may be neurodiversity, it may be ability-based diversity, and we can't stop the conversation at gender and race. And those are still two things that we're struggling with. So can you imagine? <laughs> still. Still. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, that's a great point stepping back a little bit. So you've been in different roles, you've had different leadership positions. When you kind of reflect back and think about yourself as a leader, what's a time in which you have had a leadership challenge that has been difficult that you've overcome? I would love to hear about that and that story. Yeah, what comes to mind is the onset of a pandemic. I think for everyone, we all just were left bare by trying to figure out how to support our people through such a once-in-a-generation, hopefully, <laughs> issue. And the pandemic was also an equalizer. No one had ever gone through it. So whether you were at the top of your game or just a first-time manager, we all were just like, what's next? <laughs> what's next? And every week there was different information. Is it happening here? Is it happening there? Do I have to scrub down my box of cornflakes in order to bring it into my house. Do you remember that? That was intense. Yes, I do. And at that time, I was at a company where I had 2,400 employees in 24 different time zones. So I was working from 5 a.m. to 10 p.m. because I needed to be available to my employees who were also going through the pandemic at different cycles, depending on which region of the world they sat in. And that was tough. It was tough for me just physically <laughs> and emotionally to go through that. And it was tough to not be able to support them in the ways that I traditionally had been because I didn't have access to the same resources. We were trying to pull back on budgets because we didn't know if we were going to have enough money. We were trying to negotiate contracts, but insurance companies were like, hey, people are sick. We don't know if we can just put all these enhancements in and also not lose our shirt. So you're balancing so many different things. So for me, what actually helped me to become a better leader was to be truthful and honest always and just saying, I don't know. Here's what I do know. Here's what I'm going to do best to advocate and serve you. But these are where the gaps are. And I honestly can't offer them. And I think that if more leaders were transparent, people can respect that. They may not like that answer. That's not what they're seeking. But they know that you're being authentic in what you're saying you're able to do and what you can't promise. Don't allow yourself to be so caught up in just trying to be perfect for your people that you disappoint them and yourself when you can't deliver. That's right. We were just talking before we recorded that you have a four-year-old son. Mm -hmm. So two years ago, he was two. <laughs> <laughs> if you were managing all of that and being available and or talking to people and working from five to 10, that sounds like an emotional load that you were really carrying a lot for a long period of time. Was that a big part of what was a struggle during that time? Absolutely. Because even my two-year-old had this full life and all of a sudden it came to a screeching halt. I remember having to commute and drop him off at daycare and then getting on a train and then working eight hours and then racing back to the train to beat the daycare closing time <laughs> to pick him up. So he had this full lifestyle. 
And I never even thought to explain to him, like, you can't go to school anymore. You won't be able to see your friend. And I saw him regressing and his language started to shift. He stopped using his words as much. He just seems melancholy. And at that point in time, that's when I realized, let's go out. I don't have to have these back-to-back meetings. I'm also not a robot. Let's go outside and walk the dog. Let's go for a car ride, even if it's to nowhere. And I could see him starting to come back. And honestly, having a child has helped me to stop being so obsessive about work. And I think I'm obsessive not because work is my identity, but it's because, like I said, for me, it's always human-centric. When I'm not responding to that email, that's somebody who may need a certain thing that they feel like they can only get it from me. But being able to say, no, I have to have boundaries, even if the world is on fire. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That's right. I have to prioritize my own mental health, that of my loved ones. That has helped me to become a better leader. And honestly, both my manager, my team, and the employees had my back on that. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. We were talking before about how difficult it is being a parent during the pandemic. I think especially with younger children who don't understand, even adults who understand, like it was still hard. (laughs) But when you don't understand, it's got to be so much harder. And he was probably just manifesting everything that we were manifesting, but just in a more physical way. (laughs) Yeah, so that's difficult. When you think about the time in which you were doing all of that and in the midst of it, do you feel like there's any one moment that really stood out to you that felt like, I hope this is the hardest moment of the pandemic. (laughs) Hopefully this is it. (laughs) I would say it blended together to the point of even today. (laughs) I feel like we went into an alternate universe and time, right? Like sometimes I forget what day of the week it is. I saw this meme the other day where someone was like, I'm 25, but if you adjust for the pandemic, I'm 23. And it's like, yes, You're right. We should adjust for that because we've lost two years of vacations. We've lost two years of meeting up with coworkers for happy hour, with friends for brunch. There's so much that's still lost and that we haven't really been able to grieve properly because we're still going through it. Yes. And that comes into work too. The type of work that I do, it's not simple. It's very gray and companies are struggling right now. They're like, we should hire a ton of people. Oh, wait, we don't have money next month. <laughs> or, or we need to figure out how we get everyone back in the office. Oh, no, there is a variant of the variant. So it's this constant flux and constant change that I hope we're out of this cycle in a year. But then when we honestly have to almost decompress these last few years. Yes. Even if we are at the end, which we don't know if we are, (laughs) we're still going to need time after that to, like you said, decompress. Looking back throughout your career and your life, is there like an important learning moment or some lessons maybe from your childhood growing up or earlier in your career that really has stuck with you as you've navigated times of difficulty? Is there anything that stands out? One that stands out for me was during my time as a mobility and immigration specialist. And I was dealing with a lot of high level executives. I was helping our CEO get a green card. This means I'm calling his wife (laughs) and asking her for her social security number and birthday, like really intense things at the time. And not our CEO, but there was another executive who didn't like my approach because there's multiple visa types. There's multiple ways of bringing someone legally into this country. And the way that I recommended was taking a little bit longer than all of us really wanted. And so 
he escalated, of course, <laughs> understandably. Right. And it got so far, it actually got to the global head of HR. And she sent an email, CC'd everyone, was like, Cassandra is the specialist in this domain, so we are going to go with her approach. She didn't call me. She didn't check on me. She didn't call my manager. She was like, Cassandra's the expert, so let's do what she said. And literally, I wish I had printed out that email because I would carry it in my wallet. (laughs) Right. No kidding. When you have people who advocate for you, you grow 10 sizes, right? Because that's what most people do. They go to work to do a good job. Yes, you do it for money. Let's be honest. If I was independently wealthy, I may be talking to you off the coast of a beautiful country. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But if I'm going to show up for money, I'm also going to show up for myself. I'm going to show up and do good work. And I would actually hope that anyone who listens to this podcast does that for someone else. When you see that someone is doing good work, advocate for them, sponsor them, mentor them, back them up in that email with 500 people on CC. Because I promise you, they're probably doing their best. And by questioning them and doubting them, that's when the imposter syndrome starts to set in. That's when you start to second guess yourself. And as women, we already are balancing so many things. Yeah. If you see someone doing great work, don't wait until they do the most fantastic thing ever of their career, sometimes in just those small moments, because she probably doesn't even know what that means to me all these years from now. Go ahead and tell them, yep, you're the expert. Keep doing what you're doing. Can we just say that that email probably took her like 30 seconds to write? (laughs) It wasn't hard. No. And like you said, she didn't call you. I think that's really what's powerful about that story is that it was so elegantly simple. The impact that it had on you, just that simple email is tremendous. And I think you're absolutely right. Like we can all do that. We could probably do that every day. Right? Send out one email to advocate and encourage somebody. But you're right, that makes such a big difference. And that goes back to what you were saying about what you love about what you do, which is advocating for people. Mm-hmm. And the fact that she advocated for you in that way sounds like that really was one more reason why you love doing what you do and spurred you on in that direction. Absolutely. Well, that's great. So I guess when you think about up and coming leaders, when you think about maybe your younger self, What advice do you have for leaders who are navigating the complexity that I know I never had to navigate as a 20-year-old? What advice would you have for someone early in their career? Become an expert at every level. And what I mean by that is so much of my time spent, like I told you, I graduated from college early at 19 because I just wanted to get to the next thing. And sometimes we miss opportunities because we're so focused on the next level. But when I was in those different roles, when I was in recruiting, I learned as much as I could about recruiting. When I was an HR analyst, I learned as much as I could about how to analyze and sort through data. When I was learning how to spell visa, (laughs) (laughs) I made sure that I understood how to make sure people felt comfortable with me, build trust and rapport have executives trust that I have their best interests at heart, that I'm invested in the process just the same way they are. When I got into benefits, when someone was getting married, I was excited for them. Like I was going to be part of their wedding party. So if you take the time to really get good at the thing you're currently doing, when you're that leader, you're going to be a great leader because you took the time to understand the mechanics of the way things work And now you're able to, like you said, in 30 seconds, cut through the noise. 
you're able to better understand, you're better able to support people and grow future leaders because they can learn from the mistakes that you made, but you're also able to give them that insight that was hard won in those days where it just felt like you were just doing work. Yeah. I feel like you said a lot there. One thing that stands out to me is that, and I think this is what you meant about being an expert here. It's like, we can get so distracted with, oh my gosh, am I going to do this for the rest of my life? Like, I don't know if I want to, instead of just kind of being in the moment around your job that you have now and really getting good at it and enjoying it, knowing it might not be forever and that's okay, but getting good at that will be a solid rock or a stepping stone for you to get to the next one. Is that part of what you're saying? Yeah, absolutely. I think I'm a better DEI professional because I know what it's like to come into a country and have no idea how the healthcare system works, let alone know that this is your second or third language. I'm a better DEI expert because I understand how to look at data and make connections where most people wouldn't see them. And it's all because in the moments that I had those roles where, Wendy, honestly, I'm so happy you brought up that point. I'm like, is this what I signed up for? Is this what I'm going to be doing? There's mundane parts to every job. I'm sure even ER doctors are like, oh, I have to fill out this paper, right? Yeah, right. It's true. (laughs) There's mundane points, but don't lose sight of that. Really get good. Lean into the parts that are joyous about that role and take those parts with you into the next thing that you do as you step up that ladder. Because I imagine that given just the little that you said today, you're a pretty ambitious woman. And yet there was a learning point there where it's like, hold back, (laughs) don't jump ahead, stay where you are. Like you said, get really good at this. And then the next thing. And I think that's great advice because I think in the world that we're in today, which is both complex, but also has a lot of ADD from a cultural perspective of lots of distractions and lots of what's the next best thing? What could I be doing? Can really undermine our ability to learn and be present and really get good at what we're doing today. When you think about being a woman of color, how has that impacted your leadership? I know you don't know because you've only been a woman of color. (laughs) That's who you are. So I've been told. So you've been told, right? (laughs) When you reflect on that, how has that impacted your leadership? One of the things that I'm pretty sure anyone who has reported into me has said is that you know how to make me feel seen. Wow. Because there's been moments in my career where I've been the only, I've been the only woman, I've been the only black woman, I've been the only person from Brooklyn, I've been the only person whose parents don't have a beach house in some other place (laughs) in the world. (laughs) And so it's very easy to want to shrink yourself, to want to not show who you are, because you feel like who you are may be rejected, who you are is not good enough to be in that room. Yeah. And so one of the things that I've leveraged by being able to take in the good with the bad of the job, get really good at my expertise, no matter which role I had, I knew I had my mind. I knew I had my intelligence. I knew that if I was in this room, I deserved to be in this room. I may not look like everyone around me, but there's a reason I'm in here where someone else who applied for my job isn't. And in that confidence, I was like, then why shouldn't I show who I am? So now when I think about people joining my team, or even if it's a cross-collaborative team, even if it's someone who's coming to me to ask for their dental insurance card, Winnie, for the 10th time, (laughs) (laughs) it's in your wallet. (laughs) By the way, (laughs) I want them to feel seen. I usually ask the question like, hey, you know, I've noticed that you've forgotten it a couple of times, happy to show you where you can get it, but 
tell me more, like, why is this a health concern? Why are you doing it now? Like, oh, my kids and blah, blah, blah. They're feeling seen. They're not just some issue that I have to resolve and bring my inbox to zero. I'm trying to better understand what's going on with them. And that's why I said that benefits was my favorite domain for a very long time, because it gave me the opportunity to really dig past your job description, past your title, past your salary. What's going on with you? And DEI opens that same door for me. Yes, we can get caught up in the socioeconomic political correctness, but let's stop for a second and truly understand what does it mean to be inclusive? It means that people can be seen for who they are. And that's not a blocker. That's an enhancement to where they work. Yeah. So Cassandra, how did you get there? I mean, literally like in your head, you said something about like wanting to shrink because you're so different. How do you not shrink? What in your head do you need to do to switch over so that that's not what you do and you do feel like you can be yourself and you can be confident in that? I would be dishonest with you if I said it was a overnight thing. Like one day I woke up and I was just like, yeah, I'm this awesome, amazing, accomplished woman. Hear me roar, right? (laughs) I still have some days where I'm just like, oh, wow, this person has, you know, a PhD. They're like an appointee to the White House and I'm just out here doing (laughs) this thing. But that's the thing. You're seeing people's highlights. Yeah. And that can sometimes harm us just as much. So one, if you feel like you're always comparing yourself, turn off those notifications on those socials. Always be inspired, right? When one woman wins, I think all women win. When I see a Black woman at the Olympics winning in speed skating, I'm excited for her. I never want to learn that sport, but I'm excited for her. (laughs) So I'm celebrating her, but I would say it's a process and it's every day lean into what you're good at. Every human being has a gift or a skill or something that they bring that they only know how to do. And that's where my confidence really blossomed. It was when I was like, no, I know how to do this job or I know how to speak to that employer. I know how to move you from this country to that country and make sure you get paid on time. So that's what I'm going to bring. And every time I got that victory, whether it was getting that visa accepted or going through an open enrollment and I had 80% participation or helping a company realize that they can do better in their DEI commitments. That's all my wins. And whenever I'm having a bad day or feeling like, can I do this? I go, stop. Let's look at everything you've accomplished this far. It kind of goes back to that woman who sent you that email because she was actually acknowledging what you're good at. Right. On some level, right? So she was saying, I believe in Cassandra and what she's good at. And she's an expert in this area. We are going to respect that expertise. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So I think what you're saying is if other people aren't doing that, which hopefully they are, but if they aren't, you need to recognize that for yourself. Amen. Is that part of it? Yep. Winnie, that's most of it. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Got it. (laughs) So Cassandra, what's next for you? It seems like you could go in a lot of different directions. I know you just started your new role at Meridark, but even aside from that, there's so many things that you could be doing. What's next for you? So I've been actually exploring the idea (laughs) of getting (laughs) a master's in public health. I had sworn to myself after I got my master's in HR that I'm never going back to school. Um, and the next degree I get is either my child's or an honorary one. So if there's any colleges out there, (laughs) (laughs) throw one my way, I will catch it and receive it with grace. (laughs) (laughs) Otherwise the health equity equation is so important to me. I'm passionate about it because it literally affects your life. 
it affects your ability to show up in your personal life, in your professional life. And so I will continue to advocate for that. And I think to be a better advocate for it, I need to better understand it. So that's something I am exploring. So if there's any masters of public health professionals out there who love to team up with me so I don't have to (laughs) go to school, that's great. Love it. (laughs) I'm also exploring writing a book just about educating around this topic. Because when you just like you said, not a lot of people think about benefits and then think about it's tied to DEI and think about it's tied to really helping to bridge the gap in these really potentially socioeconomic issues. So I want to bring that to the forefront, make that a conversation starter and really affect change. I feel like your box is advocacy and inside that box is a whole bunch of stuff. (laughs) You had the recruiting, you had the visa, you had benefits, and then it's like health and wellness and then all these things. And I think you're right. I think that a book on benefits and benefits as it relates to equity would be an amazing book to write because I haven't looked, but I bet that there's not a compelling and interesting content around that, that people would be interested. This could really spark something. And I'm sure that's what you do every day in your work and in your Instagram, but I can imagine this really sparking something that employers and employees really are not thinking about. I hope so, Winnie. I truly hope so. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time. This has been such a fun conversation and getting to know you. And I can't wait to see what you do next. I really enjoyed the conversation. So thank you for having me on. If people want to get in contact, they're interested in learning more about my work. LinkedIn, honestly, is the best place to reach out to me. And of course, Instagram, check out my videos, check out some of my content and happy to get feedback there too. Good. And I'll be including all of that in the show notes so people can contact you. So thank you so much, Cassandra. I look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you, Winnie. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Transformative Leadership Conversations with me, your host, Winnie Da Silva. Could you take a few minutes to provide a rating or write a comment on Apple Podcasts? Also reach out to me at www.winniedasilva.com to learn more about my work in executive coaching, leadership development, and team effectiveness. If you have your own story of overcoming a leadership challenge you'd like to share, please email me at winnie at winifred.org. Maybe I'll even have you on my show. Thanks so much. 